0: It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Tuesday, October 27, 2020. On today's episode, Hershey Dwoskin is here with In the Headlines. As always, Hershey talks about uh, a few topics, but his main topic today is the terrible story coming out of France last week of the teacher who was killed and beheaded by Islamic extremists, Hershey uh, explains what happened. But before getting to Hershey, I'm going to share with you the speech, it's about three minutes long, that the President of France, Emmanuel Macron, gave at the memorial service of the teacher. Le Président Emmanuel Macron a rendu hommage à Samuel Paty le 21 octobre dans la Cour de la Sorbonne à Paris. Voici le Président de la République française.
1: Vendredi soir. J'ai d'abord cru à la folie aléatoire, à l'arbitraire absurde, une victime de plus du terrorisme gratuit. Après tout, il n'était pas la cible principale des islamistes. Il ne faisait qu'enseigner. Il n'était pas l'ennemi de la religion dont ils se servent. Il avait lu le Coran. Il respectait ses élèves, quelles que soient leurs croyances. Il s'intéressait à la civilisation musulmane. Non. Tout au contraire. Samuel Paty fut tué précisément pour tout cela. Parce qu'il incarnait la république qui renaît chaque jour dans les salles de classe la liberté qui se transmet et se perpétue à l'école. Samuel Paty fut tué parce que les islamistes veulent notre futur et qu'ils savent qu'avec des héros tranquilles tels que lui, ils ne l'auront jamais. Eux séparent les fidèles et les mécréants. Samuel Paty ne connaissait que des citoyens. Eux se repaissent de l'ignorance, lui croyait dans le savoir. Eux cultivent la haine de l'autre. Lui voulait sans cesse en voir le visage, découvrir les richesses de l'altérité. Samuel Paty fut la victime de la conspiration funeste, de la bêtise du mensonge, de l'amalgame, de la haine de l'autre, de la haine de ce que profondément, existentiellement, nous sommes. Samuel Paty est devenu vendredi le visage de la République, de notre volonté de briser les terroristes, de réduire les islamistes, de vivre comme une communauté de citoyens libres dans notre pays, le visage de notre détermination à comprendre, à apprendre, à continuer d'enseigner, à être libres. Car nous continuerons, professeurs, Nous défendrons la liberté que vous enseignez si bien, et nous porterons haut la laïcité. Nous ne renoncerons pas aux caricatures, aux dessins, même si d'autres reculent. Nous continuerons, oui, ce combat pour la liberté et pour la raison, dont vous êtes désormais le visage parce que nous vous le devons, parce que nous nous le devons, parce qu'en France, professeur, les lumières ne s'éteignent jamais. Vive la République, vive la France.
2: Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all for coming, tuning in to our weekly current events um, class. Um, It's one week exactly from the American elections, and I don't intend to speak about that today, but next week maybe, you know, on the the day of the voting might be a good time to kind of summarize and see what could be. we so much, so many of us in Canada are focused on the American elections that um, we neglect to pay any attention to our own backyard. Where we had two elections in the last week, one in British Columbia and one in Saskatchewan yesterday. And uh, the amount of news coverage given to these elections outside of their provinces is practically nil. Um, in both cases, the incumbents were re elected. And in these times of stress and trouble, it's easy for an incumbent to be reelected if he or she shows responsible leadership in dealing with the COVID crisis. No one of course has a cure for it. No one has a solution for it. But if the leaders act responsibly, chances are they will be reelected. And if an election were held here in Quebec, I have no doubt that Premier Legault would get re-elected, and very, very likely in Ontario, uh, Premier Ford would also get re-elected. So, uh, you know, at present, uh, Mr. Biden is still in a steady lead, and if he does get re-elected, it's really a statement of how poorly the current president dealt with the COVID crisis. But we're going to leave that for next week, perhaps. And I want to focus on something completely different today. And that subject has to do with the uh, awful murder of the French uh, teacher in uh, a suburb of Paris uh, because he displayed cartoons of Mohammed to his class. After asking those uh, who might be offended by those cartoons to leave the class. Nonetheless, some student went and told his father about it. His father got upset. Uh, Other people heard about it. Some Islamic uh, or an Islamic um, uh, terrorist um, paid the students to point out who the teacher was. And then the teacher was killed and decapitated. In other words, his head was cut off with a knife. Um, before police shot the uh, terrorist who turned out to be a Chechen-born French um, Muslim resident of Paris who had been living there for many, many years. This uh, act of terrorism uh, resulted in a huge outpouring of um, anger and grief in the French population. Um, There were... um, uh, marches in honor of the uh, deceased, uh, President Macron gave speeches, um, the uh, The country was kind of united in, in a kind of a feeling that um, their values were being attacked. Uh, at the same time as the French president spoke against Islamic radicalism, uh, the kind of uh, figurehead of Islamic radicalism in the world, Mr. Erdogan, decided that France was being anti-Muslim and he called on Turkey to boycott all French products. So you can see how a local event can escalate into some sort of an international incident. Uh, In return, the French uh, government recalled the ambassador uh, from Istanbul back to Paris And right now there's a sort of a diplomatic standoff between those two countries in Europe, both of whom are NATO allies. And, you know, as a sidebar, it shows kind of, I would say how weak the NATO alliance is if uh, two members are at loggerheads with each other. Um, So I thought that the subject of Muslims in Europe would be a good one. And we'll talk a bit about the history of Muslims in Europe. And we'll talk about um, current problems in Europe uh, regarding the Muslim population. We'll talk about some numbers and percentages. So we'll get some idea then of um, of this um, new, I would call it, demographic reality in Europe, which is uh, having large uh, numbers of Muslims living in Europe. Um, the... Uh, the um, result of this um, uh, murder, uh, the French government reacted with particular uh, diligence, we'll say, and they closed they closed a mosque. They searched 120 homes. They closed down clubs and associations. They're checking emails. Um, they are pressuring social media like Facebook and Twitter to not allow uh, Muslim radical uh, propaganda to spread on the internet. And um, they uh, want these social media organizations to contact the police themselves if they see any kind of this content uh, on their websites. So really it's a kind of a spreading out of the war on terrorism from the population to social media where very often these people are uh, radicalized in the first place and where uh, if there is a plot or if there is an organization that the ideas are kind of spread on the internet. So it's become a kind of a real, we'll call it a global uh, war on terrorism, which is waged in the social media and not primarily, and not on the ground with weapons, secondarily. So let's just talk a little bit then about how Muslims got to Europe. And um, there were three great movements of masses of people into Europe of Muslims over time. Um, The first one was the one from the West where Muslims invaded from North Africa into Spain. They got as far as Spain and Portugal. They lasted there for uh, some 700 or 800 years uh, from about uh, 711 up until 1492. And the last of Muslims were expelled from Spain in 1609. So after that, long reign of Islam uh, in Spain, in the Iberian Peninsula, there were really no Muslims left in modern times, meaning that uh, any of the uh, people who did not leave Spain who were Muslims, uh, converted to Christianity and culturally uh, disappeared uh, completely. Uh, You know, much as the Jews who were kicked out uh, a little bit before, uh, there, there were no, practically no Jewish life left at all in Spain until modern times. So the, there's a parallel in that uh, in that regard. The migration, the second big migration came from the west, from the east, I should say, sorry, from the east. When the Turks um, invaded into Europe from the east, starting in the 1300s, um and uh, peaking in the uh, 1600s. So in those uh, three or four hundred years, um, Turkey uh, conquered all of Southeastern Europe and Central Europe, going as far north as Poland, as far west as Austria, and included all countries which are today in South uh, Eastern Europe, uh, including Albania, Greece, Bulgaria, Romania, um, the former Yugoslavia, um, Hungary, uh, and uh, even into parts of Poland. Uh, Gradually these the Turkish, the Ottoman Empire was defeated bit by bit, and they retreated uh, to the point where there's just a sliver left of Turkey in Europe. But many, many people who they conquered converted from Christianity to Islam. Uh, These people are mainly Slavs people, Slavic-speaking people, mainly, and today in southeastern Europe we have three majority Muslim countries, Albania, Bosnia, and Kosovo. And we also have strong minority countries where the people who live there, the Muslims who live there are people who have been living there for centuries, but they are minorities in their countries. So for example, Bulgaria, Macedonia, Montenegro, uh, Greece, Serbia, um, all these countries have minorities who who originated from the Turkish um, conquest or the Ottoman occupation and who stayed uh, in those countries until this very day. By and large, by and large, these people are mostly secular Muslims. Albania, I mentioned Albania, Albania. they're mostly secular Muslims, mostly non-radical, um, uh, and uh, very well integrated into their own countries with very little, we'll call it Islamic-style radical um. Uh, radicalization. There are some exceptions, however, there are some, but by and large, that's the situation there. Partly explained by the fact that communism uh, ruled over many of those countries under the Soviet Union from uh, after the Second World War until 1990, so roughly 45 years. And in those 45 years, all means of religious education was ended mosques were closed um, and the people were basically secularized. Um, So there was a rebirth after the end of the Soviet uh, rule, but uh, the rebirth did not result in masses of people turning into religious Muslims. Um, One other note to make about Muslims in in Europe is Russia itself, uh, which is a bit of a separate category uh, Russia itself has native Muslim populations who have been there since the Middle Ages, um, Large populations, meaning the, the Muslim population in Russia could be as much as 20 million people. Uh, these would be um, uh, descendants of the um, Tatars who invaded uh, from the, uh, was sort of from Mongolia and from Central Asia who came into Russia and who stayed. Um, And there are several provinces of Russia like Chechnya uh, and other ones, Dagestan, that are majority Muslim and who include a large amount of radical uh, Islamist type uh, people. Um, And there have been Muslim terror attacks in Russia as well. But, uh, uh, you know, leaving Russia out of the conversation because they're in a unique position of having a kind of a homegrown uh, Muslim population to deal with. Uh, But if we look at Western Europe and talk about the third great wave of uh, Muslim um, immigration into Europe, this came by and large in the very late 1900s and the 2000s as a result of civil wars all over the Middle East. So the civil war in Syria, the civil war in Iraq, uh, the ISIS taking over Iraq and Syria in parts, the civil war in Libya, the civil war in Lebanon in the 1970s, uh, up to the 1990s. Um, Afghanistan, the, the ongoing civil war, which is now basically practically 40 years old, um, all of these civil wars led to hundreds of thousands of refugees being forced to leave those countries for their own safety, or being kicked out for their own, uh, you know, for their own reasons, having nowhere to go, and uh, trying to make it to Europe simply to find a peaceful and um, safe and um, economically well-off place to move to. So there was waves and waves of people who came. Some of these people came earlier. So for example, in great, uh, in, after the Second World War was over um, and Great Britain gave independence to um, India and Pakistan, there were many Indians and Pakistani Muslims who moved to Great Britain. Um, many also moved from the Caribbean, from the Muslims from the Caribbean islands like Trinidad and uh, Guyana um, in France. In the, 19, in the 1950s and 60s, um, there was a civil war. There was a war in Algeria. Uh, there were independents that came to, to, to Tunisia and to Morocco. And many Muslims who lived in those countries either were loyal to the French regime or who felt that their lives would be better off and safer off in France than under, under independence. They already spoke French just as the educated Muslims in India and Pakistan already spoke English. And there was a wave of immigration that came um, to France in the 1960s and which in a certain sense, never stopped coming from those countries. Anytime there was a bit of a stress, uh, economically or politically, there were always people who were arriving in France from those countries. And then as well, we have to talk about Muslims who came from Africa, the the West Africa or Black Africa, who came from former French colonies, Senegal, Mali, places like that, uh, sort of on the same idea, uh, which added to the Muslim populations in France. Um, The uh, different communities then of all of these refugees settled down in all uh, different places. Another uh, notable uh, wave was in the 1960s, when Germany invited Turks to come to live in Turkey to work in the uh, factories which needed labor and who they hoped would sort of save up some money and go back home and they never did. So Germany has a huge Turkish population, France has a huge Maghrebian population, in other words Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco. Great Britain has Muslims, uh, mainly from Pakistan and India. Um, And then you've got the rest of the European countries like Holland and Sweden, Germany, uh, Switzerland, Belgium, who have uh, received immigrants from pretty well all over the Middle East as a result of the various civil wars that I mentioned. Um, The numbers uh, are different in every country. Um, France has the most. uh, uh, First of all, there's no really, really accurate statistics because um, in some cases, it's not legal to ask for a person's religion. In other cases, the person may not want to give their religion. So the census figures are not sort of super, super exact, but uh, there are some pretty good estimations. Um, The estimation is, is that At this point in Western Europe, the country with the highest percentage of Muslims is Austria with 8%. Maybe a bit surprising. Um, France is uh, almost at 8%. Germany is at 5%, Denmark, four, Holland, five, Switzerland, six, the UK, five, Sweden, five. So there's an average of around 5% of the total population of all these Western European countries who are Muslim. And these Muslims um, are people, like I said, from many different countries, many different uh, origins, um, many uh, different social classes. Some may, you know, may have been well-off uh, refugees who came, for example, maybe the Iranian um, exiles who left when a Shah was tossed out, uh, to people who just walked out of refugee camps in Syria with nothing. So there's a wide range then of, um, of you know, social backgrounds uh, to all of these refugees. Um, now, obviously, um, obviously the, the situation of these, re- of these refugees and these immigrants, are different from one grouping to another. But they all have something in common, which is that their culture, religion, language, and even their skin color is different from the host countries. And meaning that the the process of assimilation of these people is um, uh, much harder than it would be if they were just moving from Norway to Sweden or from Finland to Sweden or from Belgium to France or from Great Britain to France or from Spain to Portugal or vice versa. So the more in common that countries have with each other when one moves to another, the easier it is for these people to integrate and assimilate. The other factor that the people have come, many of them with no education uh, and no means and no resources means that their integration is, is much harder because they have so much more to catch up with. Uh, we could point out, for example, that people who come from Afghanistan were living in almost primitive and middle age conditions, um, you know, uh, where the social values, uh, for example, of women's equality um, was non-existent. So it's quite a clash for, you know, for these people, if you put them yourselves in their position to come to the strange country, um, it's it's very, very likely that they will have little or no contact with the host people because there's just no way for them to communicate. Um, There's no easy way for them to get work. In many of these countries, refugees are not allowed to work. Um, and so they kind of tend to live in their own districts, to socialize with their own people, to go to their own mosques, and to live a kind of a life in a bubble. Now, this living a life in a bubble is something that the host countries, of course, resent and uh, want to try to work against. And. Um, Certain countries, uh, many of the European countries, have no real histories of immigration in modern times. So, unlike we'll call it France, or unlike we'll say Great Britain, countries like Hall, uh, like in modern, so countries like Belgium or Holland, uh, or especially the Nordic countries, Denmark, Sweden, and Norway, you know, they hardly received anybody from outside their own. Uh, cultures as immigrants, you know, in the last hundred years. So it means that whenever anybody new walks into their society, uh, these people are perceived right away as kind of strangers and and kind of interlopers. And, um, you know, the hostility then builds uh, on both sides against each other, uh, the receiving party and the arriving party. So this, you know, as it lays a basis for the um, uh, the for the we'll call it antisocial elements that can build up inside of um, inside of the immigrant societies. Um, uh, by and large, of course, by and large, we can. Um, Uh, easily sort of lose the context of this sort of immigration because if we look at the actual numbers not the percentages there's millions and millions of muslims now living in europe so for example in france um, it could be uh, maybe six million muslims living in france alone and in other countries, you, know, uh, you know, the, a you know, corresponding descending number, uh, depending on percentage of the population. In Germany, it could be 4 million. So we're not talking about a few thousand or a few hundred thousand people. We're talking about millions of people who are now living in Europe and many of whom have lived in Europe now uh, for more than one generation. So um, these people, in many instances, are they face the typical immigrant um, uh, problems. The first generation has to get themselves established and is thinking only of getting themselves jobs and getting themselves settled. The second generation are the ones whose kids have been in school and they've lost the sort of rootedness of the culture that they came from but at the same time they can't quite fit into the culture that they are living in because of their otherness and because of their differences and so they're kind of stuck a bit in the middle between both both ends they for the most part will speak the native language the the um you know the language of the country perfectly well but on the other hand uh, there's some social problems Uh, often problems of poverty because their parents don't have good jobs Um, and many of them are kind of stuck between two poles and some of these people and some of them are the ones who are most prone or subject to radicalization and the radicalization can then lead to acts of terrorism like what we saw in France just just recently. The uh, host countries, they are the ones that also have to uh, decide what attitude to take towards these newcomers. And this is a very difficult problem because in many cases, um, the arrival of these newcomers was not a real strong choice of the accommodating government. Uh, European uh, rules uh, sort of parceled out refugees to each country and said, look, it's our responsibility as the European Union to look after these people, so you take these many, you take these many, you take these many, and um, you know, there was no sort of huge welcome for these refugees when they came into the country so that's uh problem number one, and then the question was that each country had to face was, well, what do we do with these people? Uh, do we try to will say wash off all of their past history and make them into people exactly like us? Or do we say that their identities and their language, culture, and religion are a part of their their being and to try to accommodate them within the lifestyle of our own people? Uh, So in other words, a sort of an accommodation versus assimilation dilemma. And each country looks at it depending on what their own um, uh, histories are, what their own uh, attitudes are, uh, et cetera. So for example, Great Britain has always been one which has been a bit more toward the accommodation integration side. And maybe you could say France would be more toward the assimilation side. Um, But, um, you know, usually it's a mix of both, um, uh, you know, both approaches. Um, Sometimes uh, it can easily be the case that the uh, attempt to integrate or assimilate these newcomers uh, does not succeed. And um, the reasons for this are simply that the numbers might be too overwhelming. Um, It might be that the uh, new immigrants are so self-isolating, as I said before, that there is really no chance for contact with the greater society. So, for example, in France, you've got um, huge blocks, and I've seen them myself, huge blocks of of uh, residents who live in kind of on the edges of Paris or the edges of Marseille, where uh, because unemployment is so great, um, these people have very little contact with the outside world. And um, they uh, just kind of live in their own, as I said before, their own bubble. And, um, you know, sometimes this can lead to problems where you've got... um, Uh, sort of uh, radicalized um, young people, radicalized by the internet, radicalized in their own milieu, uh, people who have nothing to look forward to, can't find a job, uh, get involved often in petty crime, and from there, you know, uh, it moves on sometimes to uh, terrorism. Um, In many cases, poverty is one of the sort of uh, keys to this, uh, this uh, situation and uh, in places for example where the cost of living is so high like in Sweden or in Denmark um, if, the, if these immigrants don't have enough money um, it's very hard to then participate in um, you know society as a whole and they just tend to kind of socialize among themselves this, this sort of idea. Um, uh, let me just, I just want to check my notes for one little second. Um, uh, now the, there have been, I think I'm going to talk about terrorism now in, in, um, uh, yeah, in, uh, Europe. Just check my time here. So, um, uh, also, also, yes, that the so. B- besides trying to figure out about the assimilation versus versus integration model, um, the other things that have to be the other main the clashes which which have arrived now in France is a question of um, sort of freedom of speech um versus respect for minority values and this is this is in particular the the dilemma in france which they have which has caused this whole this whole um this whole uh, uh incident which is that france has adopted as its values uh personal freedoms and freedom of speech um and France has an idea that religion is something which has to be kept at home, put in your pocket and not, take, not be taken out to, outside. Uh, and we in Quebec in adopting Bill 21 have uh, sort of followed on that same line, which is that religion is a private matter. It's an individual matter. It's not really a community matter. And that when the state conducts itself, and By this data the state, I means the municipalities or the provinces. When they conduct themselves, they should not have any regard whatsoever to uh, the religious beliefs of any of its members. It shouldn't bend over to accommodate itself to um, to um, uh, you know to accommodate uh, religious beliefs. Because if you do that, you sort of set aside one community and give them special treatment over another community. And that if you do this, then you're breaking down the whole fabric of society, which is supposed to be neutral. So this is the philosophy of France. And I would have to say that, and and Quebec, and this derives from a kind of a reaction against the domination of the Catholic church in both places, um, where the Catholic church ran not only the religious life of the society, but just about every, every other part of life in society. And uh, you know, if the Catholic church was upset at you, you pretty well had no standing in the society that you were in. In France, uh, this sort of, we'll call it uh, secularism versus Catholicism uh, war uh, sort of ended in 1905 um, and in Quebec it ended really in the 1960s and as the, in both cases the so-called winning side was the secular side And in order to prevent sort of a comeback, uh, these uh, this secular side promoted secularism as a value in and of itself and uh, demoted any kind of um, public display of religious affiliation. Now, Uh, As far as the Catholic Church is concerned, uh, they were the losers, and still are the losers. But uh, the idea of a secular society is not one that's aimed only at the Catholic Church. It's aimed at religion in general. Now, when you have other religions, like Islam, or like Judaism, who have to play by the same rules... The results are very different, and uh, because of the way the communities are organized, and because of the laws that uh, pertain to each community. So, for example, so for example, um, in France, uh, if a school is providing free lunches to their students, and if the Muslims uh, and Jews uh, won't eat pork in in class, does it mean that the state has to say, well, too bad for you. We're serving it. You have a choice to eat it or not. Or does the state say, look, we could serve anything. We don't have to serve pork. We could serve, you know, something else. Uh, You know, obviously in the case of of Muslims, um, there there are no rules of Kashrut, And if any Jew is sending their child to a public school, um, you know, the chances are they don't really much... uh, care uh, you know about these rules, but they may not just eat pork and, and want something else. So if the state b- bends to the to the um, needs of a minority and serves meals which are pork free, does that mean that the sort of the whole is catering to the part or the majority is catering to the minority? Uh, That's the kind of dilemma that that society faces when you have uh, secularism as a value. The hijab, of course, has been the sort of point of contention, both in Quebec and in France now for for years and years. And it's not only France, but many European countries have followed the rule of not allowing hijabs uh, to be worn by public servants, by teachers, by police by um, judges, uh, by lawyers, by um, other uh, civil officials. The idea is to promote a kind of neutrality in their eyes, that if 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 a person is wearing a a distinctively Muslim headscarf, it sort of looks like it's promoting religion in the public. And that's something they want to uh, avoid. They would rather do the other way to say, for example, to a young Muslim girl who comes up to a police person, a police woman who is also a Muslim. They say, look, you know, I'm not wearing a hijab. You don't have to wear one either. This sort of setting an example for secularism in society. Um, There's also, I would say, perhaps a minority belief uh, that uh, women are forced to wear a hijab and therefore by not by by um, by uh, requiring that a woman does not wear one, that they are freeing women from their uh, let's say paternalistic uh, fathers or brothers who want them to wear something against their will, and this way they're sort of free to do it. And um, you know there are many uh, Muslim women who support this idea. So this conflict about the um, the hijab. Uh, is one which again brings you know into into contact this idea of um you know how are minorities supposed to be accommodated and uh, in the case of france they've decided to do this law by law uh, in great britain they don't have that kind of a law in the rest of canada and the u.s of course we don't have it but here in quebec we have it um and the hijab is not the only sort of point of contention there's always there's also this famous burkini case which is a kind of a uh we'll call it a modest bathing suit that has a head cap cover a head, uh, like a kind of an attached bathing cap and uh, which covers all the hair and which many french municipal um uh authorities object to and they say you know we don't want to see women wearing burkinis on our beaches. Of course, you know, uh, it's sort of setting one person's cultural values against another because obviously, uh, let's say, wearing a bikini in, in you know, Saudi Arabia would, would have, uh, you know, kind of the same um, negative uh, uh, feelings that a burkini has in France. So these, these sort of cult- cultural clashes, religious clashes, are something which sort of sets the the two groups apart and which again can lead to a a sort of a a kind of resentment or radicalization on the part of those people, those uh, people who, who are prone to being radicalized. It doesn't happen, you know, just like that. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, but uh, once you are led down that path, you start to look for reinforcing ideas and reinforcing examples that you can find on social media. And then before you know it, you might even encounter other people with the same ideas. And before you know it, a plot is hatched. And that is the um, you know source of some of the terrorism that has happened in Western Europe in the last 30 uh, odd years. Um, <clears throat> um, I also might mention that um, uh, Muslim terrorist attacks have been carried out against the Jewish populations in certainly in Belgium and in France. And, um, you know, obviously these have nothing to do with uh, society's role uh, with the discrimination against them but strictly motivated by um, the politics in the Middle East and the sort of anti-Zionism is transferred into anti-Semitism. And uh, these attacks have then taken place on uh, Jewish schools, Jewish supermarkets uh, with lethal effect in um, Belgium and in uh, France. Um, it's also interesting to note that these kind of attacks in general don't elicit the same kind of huge public outcry uh, than uh, the attacks, for example, on the teacher in France. And uh, that's because of a kind of a, maybe a lingering anti-Zionism or anti-Semitism that uh, you know may be present in the host cultures and host countries, um, who they themselves may regard Jews as also being outsiders, and so a sort of an attack of one outsider on another outsider. So why should we be, why should we be so concerned about it? Um, uh, there are many uh, Jews in Western Europe who feel that this is the situation, even though it may objectively not be the situation. Um, there's also a kind of an excusing of uh, anti-Semitic behavior uh, in Western Europe on the grounds that uh, if Israel is such a villain, uh, then somehow or other the Jews of Europe being sympathetic with Israel are uh, accomplices or, or you know, partners in that sort of uh, action that Israel takes. And so uh, counteractions are in some way or other politically acceptable. Uh, not obviously when it comes to murdering people, but you know, anything up until that point. So uh, let's just talk then a little bit about, um, uh, so we went from this specific example of uh, the teacher in France. Let's just talk a bit about terrorism in general in Western Europe and see where where it has gone. And in doing the research, I was surprised that, you know, I remember individual terrorist attacks, but when you group all of them together, it's really quite, quite unbelievable how many there have been, which there have been 48 uh, attacks in Western Europe, which have resulted in deaths since 2015. That's a lot. In 2017, in particular, there were very, very many. Some of you may remember... A bombing of the trains in Madrid. Different bombings in London, um, Paris uh, attacks. Um, uh, many of them uh, occurring in Paris, in Nice, and in Brussels, and the Jewish Museum, um, in Manchester, the Ariana Grande concert. Um, uh, you know, a train, a trains in London. Um, really quite a number with with huge amounts of deaths. Um, The numbers since 2015 have gone up, up until 2020 when these things seem to have calmed down a little bit. Um, There were also, besides those attacks, there were many, many dozens of plots which were uncovered um, before they could come to any kind of um, you know, lethal results. And I saw a list of them, uh, you know, which is over two pages long. Um, and these plots uh, occurred, you know, all over Western Europe and Great Britain and France and in Germany and other places. So there hasn't really been a country in Western Europe that's been spared from uh, this type of uh, action. Um, you know, um, except maybe, you know, not, not counting the very small ones that don't have a big Muslim population. But any of those big countries that I mentioned before have had uh, serious uh, attacks uh, of a terrorist nature. And, you know, a terrorist attack is something because it's unknown and because it can happen anywhere to anybody uh, is particularly frightening to everybody in that society and has the unfortunate inevitable effect of blaming the whole group of people for the actions of a few of them. There's almost have been almost no acts of terrorism in Europe which haven't been caused by Muslim uh, extremists or Islamic fundamentalists. Um, As you know at one time in the olden days it was uh, left-wing attacks and right-wing attacks and um, all those kind of things, uh, ha, you know, happening in the certainly the anarchists uh, in the 19 teens and 1920s. There was plenty of bombings and things like that, but they were small scale and politically motivated. Um, you know, this is kind of the first time where we have religiously motivated attacks um, on people. Uh, you know, since uh, since the uh, wars of religion ended in Europe in the, uh, in the 16, uh, in the 1600s. Um, The, um, the uh, attacks also don't have patterns. In other words, it's not like there's one organization that's doing it, uh, or one organization that's controlling it, or one country that's motivating it from abroad. These attacks are carried out by people of very different ethnicities. They could be Moroccans, it could be Somalis, it could be Turks, it could be Chechens, Um, they could be um, uh, Afghans, they could be Syrians. Um, These people could have been newcomers or they could be people who lived there for a long time as happened in this this case. There could be groups of people who get together to do a plot, as we've seen in in Western Europe, Uh, or there could be complete lone lone wolf-type attacks. There could be attacks with knives, there could be attacks by cars, there could be attacks by explosives, there could be shooting. So many different people using many different weapons, many different um, uh, sort of... uh, uh, modus, modus operandi. And for that reason, um, and for, for all these reasons, um, it's a factor which uh, scares um, many, many people in Europe. Now, politically speaking, of course, then there are uh, especially right-wing political parties who want to um, motivate their supporters, gain new supporters by pointing out to these, these by pointing out these terrorist attacks, and by saying that they would be able to do something against them if they were elected. So people like this include Madame Le Pen in France, uh, in Holland, uh, in Holland, in Denmark, in Sweden, in Germany. The alternative for Germany. In Belgium, the, the, uh, the uh, Flemish bloc um, uh, in, uh, like I said, in Holland, the PVV party. Um, lots of them have this kind of right-wing anti-Muslim feeling. Um, uh, none of these parties have ever been elected to lead their countries, um, uh, even as a strong minority or in a coalition government. So we have no real way of knowing what they would really do once they got into power. But talk is very easy. And the the more people feel threatened, the more they're willing to vote for these kind of parties. And um, they've had an ongoing success uh, and are still uh, present. Uh, Sometimes their support goes up and down, like in Holland. Uh, Sometimes they get really strong. Um, and sometimes, uh, you know, their support kind of, kind of, uh, sort of goes away once the memory of terrorism goes away. But the the a- these actions have caused these political changes in Europe, which were absolutely not present in Europe uh, in the nineteen sixties or seventies uh, before these sort of terrorist attacks started. Um, what's interesting often is that the Terrorists are second generation people, people who've grown up in that country, people who speak the language. And as I said, who for some reason or other feel alienated and, um, and uh, uh, you know, uh, and motivated. So what could be done? The question is now, let's I'll just finish off with this here. So what could the uh, European countries do to... Um, to fight against this idea of terrorism, and the fight is often on two fronts. Uh, one is the called the practical front, which would be to to especially watch over known terrorists, to keep track of them, to uh, infiltrate any kind of radical groups, to plant um, uh, you know agents in mosques and in clubs to try to infiltrate them physically. Uh, another one is to monitor the internet and monitor social media to see what kind of ideas are going out there and try and find the people who are promoting um, terrorism. Um, so that would be on that side. And then another one is to kind of try to integrate the people better into their society so that they feel part of the country and not excluded. And that's a much harder job and of course a much more expensive job. Uh, it involves uh, hiring uh, people. It involves um, uh, bringing people into political groups. Uh, it involves um, uh, uh, making a fairer sort of housing arrangements where people aren't ghettoized. Um, it involves uh, a positive attitude towards Im- Im- immigration. And I would have to say that in Canada, we've succeeded by and large. Um, We have had our share of plots, a couple of them, uh, but by and large, the very vast majority of Muslims who live in this country, who are now uh, 3.5% of our population or 1.1 million, have not been involved in any of these actions, even though uh, these people come from the same countries and the same backgrounds as the ones in Europe did. And I'd have to say that goes for the United States also, where there's three and a half million Muslims living in the United States or 1% of the population. And you don't uh, hear of, uh, you know, any real strong terrorist style organizations or plots. Uh, I just maybe want to finish off by saying that um, the, the graduates of ISIS, in other words, some of these countries sent some of these Muslim populations in, who were already established in Western Europe went to Syria and Iraq to fight with ISIS, the Islamic State, and committed, of course, uh, all the crimes that they committed. Many of them are stuck now in jail, in prison in, in Syria, uh, and, uh, you know, who want to come back because they say, well, we're Belgian citizens and we're, uh, we're French citizens and we want to come back home. These countries don't want them because they're afraid of what they will bring back to those countries. And there've already been cases, many of them, where fighters have gone to Syria, have come back from Syria, and then became, you know, involved in some sort of terrorist activities. So, um, you know, these people's lives are in limbo. They've been stuck now in, 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 in these uh, holding cells, we'll call them, or holding prison, prison communities, Uh, for years now and they've got children there also and um, you know the Kurdish uh, population who's sort of guarding them says look we're running out of time patience and money what are we supposed to do with these people they're not our citizens they're your citizens and it's your responsibility to take them back so this is a an ongoing uh, question mark for the host country for the you know countries from which these people came um um. um well, let me just see if there's any other points that I wanted to make here pretty well that's kind of pretty well it Well, let me you know we'll go to you and we'll see about uh, any questions just uh, to um, uh, remind you uh, uh, you know this idea of cartoons of Mohammed in Denmark, it uh, happened first. In France, it happened a couple of times, where um, you know, according to Islamic law, it's forbidden to portray the the figure of Mohammed in in a, in a you know in a real uh, way. And because these newspapers and magazines did it, there was attacks on the people working in those magazines, and in, in both in France and in Denmark, and the people were killed as a result of it. And uh, this latest incident is just a kind of a repetition or a reminder of what happened there in the first place. And there are people who feel that um, the the, uh, defense of religion is far more important than anything else in their lives. And I think it's again worth to mention this, that uh, people who are Muslims are far more attached to their religion than people who are Christians or Jews attached to their religion. In other words, they're much stronger followers of religion in, in, in general. Um, and therefore, they're willing to listen to the precepts of those imams who preach that an insulting Islam is uh, something that people should uh, take seriously. So maybe I'll just stop with that and we'll see if you've got any questions or comments. And... Um, and uh, let's see, what do you have to say? Hello, Mr. Dwoskin. I see Howard has a question for you. Howard, uh, please unmute yourself.
1: Hi, Howard. Hi. It, it seems that in English-speaking countries, that Canada, English, Canada, the rest of Canada, United States, England, there's a more of an attitude of multiculturalism, a more of a tolerance and a re- respect for immigrants than in like uh, Quebec and France where they just want, they, 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 don't, they don't, there doesn't seem to be too much tolerance of, of immigrants. They're trying to understand their culture. Uh, what, yeah.
0: Uh, yeah.
1: That? Yeah. Yeah. It-
2: Uh, You know, that's a very true comment and a very valid comment. Um, You could say that, um, you know, you could ask why exactly that is, but for sure it's true. Um, uh, And a kind of a, there's two self-reinforcing ideas here. Um, One is that... um, Uh, In Great Britain, uh, even, uh, well, uh, I was going to say it's a question of tolerance as being part of the society makeup, but certainly in Great Britain at times there was no tolerance whatsoever. Catholics were persecuted, uh, dissenters were persecuted, but, um, you know, that goes back uh, centuries. But certainly since the 1900s, Britain and France, and Australia, and New Zealand, and South Africa ruled by, if it was ruled by the English uh, minority there, um, they had a great acceptance of immigration and immigrants and multiculturalism. And there wasn't the idea that people had to assimilate immediately into into the predominant, the host culture. Um, Now also, besides that idea, there was an idea of liberalism in general. And liberalism uh, equals tolerance. And uh, writers like um, John Stuart Mill um, and Berkeley and John Hume, who wrote wrote philosophies of liberalism, these ideas penetrated into the political thinking and political class of the 1800s. And that idea of liberalism, of sort of live and let live, uh, is there till this very day. Now, on the other hand, in France, they also had ideas of liberalism. Um, you know, some of the sort of fathers of the French Revolution, uh, people who wrote uh, like Jean-Jacques Rousseau also had a, roughly the same ideas of liberalism, um, but uh, the, they weren't translated into political rule in the same way. The state still had a more stronger predominance. Uh, and more of a rule-setting idea than in uh, the English-speaking countries. So, uh, but nonetheless, you know, as much as Great Britain is a liberal country, many, many acts of terrorism have taken place there. Um, you know, stabbings in London on the bridges and that, uh, that concert in Manchester and uh, the London train bombing. Um, you know, sometimes these things were given a political flavor by saying, well, This is a payback for colonialism of Great Britain, but um, you know there's no real kind of uh, way to say that um, you know Great Britain was treated any different by terrorists than any than any other country in Western Europe. Do you have
0: any more questions, Howard?
1: So, is there is there any political party in France today that articulates a more that's in opposition that articulates a more tolerant uh, attitude towards immigrants?
2: Uh, It's a good question. It's a very good question. I would say like this. Um, France at this point has three political uh, streams. There's a left-wing stream, um, which um, is... uh, tolerant to, uh, to immigrants up to a certain extent um, but who supports the idea that um, France is a secular society and is a very strong supporter of that. Then there's the middle stream which President Macron is part of which um, has the same secularist ideas um, but you know is not part of this sort of socialist. Uh, a nationalist uh, taking over industries uh, left, Um, but which supports in the main a kind of, we'll call it a moderate liberal approach, Um, you know, with uh, with a fair amount of tolerance towards immigrants. And then there's the right wing, which is currently, you know, somewhere between 25% or 30% of the support uh, led by Mrs. Le Pen, which is an out and out, nationalist, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim in particular uh, outfit, which says that these people should have no standing whatsoever uh, in their society, and the country would be better off without them, and the French should not take any more of them. So we'll call it a Trumpist sort of approach. And uh, th- th- those are the three streams in, in French society today. Um, anything, any, did I, did I answer your question? I think so.
0: Yeah. Thank yeah.
2: you. Anyone any else? questions, Howard? No. I don't see any more questions, Mr. Dwaskin, but I will just wait a few more seconds in case somebody wants to rate or raise their hand. Let me just have a little look at some of my notes and see if there's anything I didn't say, I make notes, but you know, I don't really read them. I kind of do it more for, for
0: uh,
2: yeah. mm-hmm. um. oh, Mr. Dwaskin, I see that there's another raised hand. Selma, please um, unmute yourself. Okay, go ahead, Selma, Please. Hi, hi, Boskin. Thank you so much. I totally, I really appreciate your articulate and so easy to follow um, talks. You know, it's well, really, really easy and uh, informative uh, I, I, I this is not part of today's topic you did mention elections uh, at the very beginning i was and i maybe not for today but the significance of the um supports that the green the leader of the green party um won in uh, well won or gained in the election in uh, toronto center and what the significance is there some kind of significance to that is that there's some kind of Future, something that we can look forward to. So uh, that's okay, it. it's a, so let me just give you a quick sort of a thumbnail um, impression here. Um, the Green Party of Canada is really part of a green, worldwide green movement, which started in Europe, uh, which is strongest in Europe where in Europe they have actually been elected to government, most often as part of a coalition. And um, unfortunately for Canadians, the Green Party, which has achieved somewhere around five to 7% of the vote as a whole, uh, because of our uh, first man past the post system, um, has never really succeeded in Uh, Certainly not in coming to power, never mind in any province, but in electing more than a couple of people, Um, even though they have widespread support across the country, but that widespread support is not really concentrated anywhere. Now, there's a few couple of exceptions, and the on Vancouver Island is really the biggest exception, where they have now consistently elected Green Party members, both uh, federally and provincially, for several elections in a row. So there is a kind of a base there. Uh, they also did succeed in New Brunswick a bit and PEI even, I think they got someone elected. Um, it, it's In some ways it's hard to distinguish the NDP from the Greens because they both stand, they overlap quite considerably. And the question that was brought up between the two parties is should we you know, we're not going to unite because we come from different places and different histories, but at least we should make an agreement to say that considering we have this sort of a best man wins system should we not run against each other? Should we just agree to say, well, you know in these places I won't run in these places you won't run. So as to give the, the sort of left a better chance to win. Um, and this is ongoing, this sort of discussion by the way is ongoing uh, in the Green Party and the NDP, and who knows what will happen you know, next time around. Um, yes, it's true that the world and young people in particular are more concerned about the environment, about climate change, and th- th- this is the main plank that the Green Party has. Unfortunately, um, they've also managed to attract some kooky people uh, running for them um you know in past elections um, some of whom have been pretty strongly anti-semitic and uh, they've had to been kicked out of their kicked out of the party uh, and, and disqualified from running for those reasons um they are becoming a mainstream party uh, uh, and um, the the i don't think that um mrs paul the leader of the party ever hoped to win in her toronto riding because it's just never happened before but um the fact is that she did very well and uh it could be a sign that the green party as a whole will um you know do better but so long as we have the system that we have um they will never get close to, to to sort of electing a government, which is why the Green Party and the NDP want to change to a proportional representation system where you get the same number of seats as you get the same percentage of votes as seats. The Prime Minister before the last election promised that we would be going in that direction, but he didn't do it because uh, the Liberals are the main winners of the current system and why change while you're ahead kind of thing. But it would be nice to have a combination of two systems to give voices to the Green Party and to the NDP and to any other minority party that comes around uh, to give them a greater representation in a system which rewards uh, only the winner of a riding and not someone who came in one vote underneath that winner um you know the some of the same complaints are being voiced in the US at this point although it's certainly nothing comparable but um you know in the last election the um in Canada the conservatives won more votes than the liberals and the liberals won the election uh the democrats won more votes than the uh, than the republicans and the republicans won the election so it'd be nice to find a system that aligns more perfectly the outcome of the uh, the wishes of the people with the outcome of the election. But um, the Green Party at least have hung in there. you know they could have quit after you know one or two uh, federal election cycles where they you know won one seat or two seats or three seats and nothing more. but they've managed to hang in. Uh, Elizabeth May, you know, was the leader of the party for a long time. She got herself elected in um, on Vancouver Island. Um, and, um, you know, now it remains to be seen what happens in the next generation of, uh, of leadership in that party with uh, Mrs. Paul, uh, who is Black and Jewish at the same time. So she's got kind of a two minority statuses working against her in a way. Um, but, uh, you, know, uh, it, 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 you know, it's something that's ongoing. Let's put it like that. But if you look at Europe, they have really done some very, very successful elections, especially in parts of Germany, some of the states of Germany, um, in Austria, in many of the Euro- Western, Western European states, they've either become the main opposition or they're in a part of a coalition government. And that's because those countries use some sort of proportional representation to, to decide the results of the election.
0: Do you have any more questions, Thelma, from Mr. Roskin?
2: No, thank you. I appreciate the answer. Thank though. you, Thelma. Thank you for the question. I don't see any more questions or raised hand, Mr. Dwaskin. so um, do you have any last uh, words? Yeah, I, I, would just say, I would just say that um, I, I did, I did, um, I did uh, make the statement that religion as a whole is, is more important in the lives of Muslims, including Muslims in Europe, than religion is in other societies. And I was just looking at a statistic uh, that says that um, um, uh, um, uh, three quarters uh, of Muslims in Europe reject the idea of a pluralism in Islam. In other words, changing the rules of Islam to make it more pluralistic or just as you know, uh, Protestants change the rules of Christianity or Jews change the reformed Jews change the rules in a way of Judaism to make it conform more to, to the, um, you know, mores of society that uh, among Muslims, uh, three quarters don't want to change anything. And um, that if there's a, a, if there's a conflict between religious law and secular law, uh, two, two thirds of Muslims think that religious laws should take precedence over secular laws. And, um, you know, in a way, we could just come back to COVID again and think about um, among the ultra-Orthodox Jews that they feel the same way, that, um, you know, the the secular authorities can't close down synagogues or schools because religious laws dictate that these places open. And um, so they're going against the secular laws, even though, This could endanger their lives and society's lives. In other words, among people who feel who who are religious, it it takes up so much of of space in their lives that there's not much room for anything else to sort of fit in. Um, But, you know, societies never stay the same and they always change. And, um, you know, I'm I'm the kind of person who likes to look at the good side and say that, uh, you know, maybe... uh, Thirty million Muslims, or I don't have n- maybe twenty-five million Muslims in Europe. Uh, you know, think one way, uh, or don't act in a kind of an antisocial way. And there's just a very, you know, there's uh, several, hun- uh, maybe a hundred thousand. Uh, I think I was reading, you know, and who are on radars of con- of countries, you know, known. We'll call them known suspects, or you know, people that they're following. They're actually following around 100,000 people on the internet to see what these people are up to. But that is a kind of a very tiny fraction of the whole. So, it, you know, I don't want people listening to this class to condemn European Muslims as a whole of, for being antisocial or, 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 or terrorist or anything like this. But uh, there is a very small minority whose actions have very severe consequences. So let me just thank you all for listening. And I hope you come back next week, where which will actually be on Election Day in the United States. So we'll see, you know, maybe summarize and see what happens up to that point. So thanks again for listening.